I'm Michael, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. As we look to the center of these circles, we ask ourselves, what is it that's at the center of my life? What does everything else in my life revolve around? Jesus Christ says he wants to be in the center of our lives. And if we ever invite him there, that we'll experience real life, both abundant life on earth and everlasting life after earth. As Bill pointed out, we are uh, winding down, potentially, the quest for 22, now 12, after the 815 service, it's actually a little less than 12, but we're keeping it consistent. Uh, but we would encourage you to, to jump in and serve. Over half the congregation serves in some way, and we would love to you, for you to join the more than half side of that ledger. We would love it. And if you wait till next, you can wait till next week, but I can't guarantee there will be anything left next week. I do want to finish by next week. If we don't finish by next week, I'm going to, you know, start... Uh, getting jittery about the quest. Took us four to five weeks last year. I want three to four weeks this year. That'd be lovely. Hey, so here's a sermon. Um, did you did you have clubs in middle school, or do you have clubs in middle school? In your middle school, do what what kind of what kind of clubs did you have in middle school? What clubs were you in? Somebody needs to fess up. Spanish club. Very good. Someone at eight fifteen said drama club which I thought, that's kind of pretty well summarizes middle school for, for me. <laughs> uh, geography club, somebody said. How about the math club? That was a popular club. At, uh, at my middle school, the biggest club was called CLIC. Acronym, Christ Living in Christian Kids, CLIC. Now, somewhat unfortunate, the Christian club at my school was named CLIC, but uh, that's for, an, for another day. But this is no, no joke. At a 1,000-person middle school, 500, half the school was in this club. Now, is that because half the school were committed Christians or people actively pursuing or investigating faith in Christ? Oh, no, no, not at all. It was just like the cool club to be in, right? You could talk with all your friends, and some people felt obligated to be in that club. Their parents made them be in that club or whatever. So contrast that to last year, end of last year, I spoke at a retreat uh, for a campus ministry at the University of Vermont. And this was an exciting retreat for the, for the campus ministry because it was more than double their biggest previous retreat. And there were 35 people on this retreat. But to a person, they were all either actively following Christ or they were trying to investigate who Christ was and what he meant for their lives. The U.S. historically has been more like the first example and it is becoming more like the second example, right? You've experienced this change in your life. You've seen it. It may be good. It may be bad, but it's happening. That, that our culture is becoming more uh, secular, it's becoming more pluralistic. Christianity is no longer the cool thing to do. Uh, it's not the expected thing that you would do. It doesn't permeate into all the culture like it, it maybe once did. Now, from my perspective, the slow death of cultural Christianity is not all bad. In fact, it's going to have some really positive byproducts. But we're in the midst of the change, and change can be disorienting. 
you may find the change that's going on disorienting. But I have good news. You and I are not the first people to ever try to seek out God or live for God in a changing culture. You, we're not the first people to ever try to seek God and live for God in a culture that is pluralistic and secular. In fact, most of the books of the Bible are written from that perspective. And there may be no better example than the book of the Bible called Daniel. So what we want to do to start this year off is we want to spend five weeks studying the biblical book called Daniel. Daniel's a book in the Old Testament. That means it's a part of the Bible that predates the earthly ministry of Jesus. It's 12 chapters long. The first six chapters are events from the life of Daniel and his friends. The last six chapters are prophetic visions of the future that Daniel had. We're going to spend most of our time in the first six chapters, though the last week we will give, uh, look at the last six chapters. My encouragement to you, it's only 12 chapters long and like Bible chapters long, which is shorter. Bible chapters are shorter than book, regular book chapters. It's only 12 chapters long, so throughout this five-week series, my encouragement to you would be to read the book of Daniel. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the chairs. You can take it home with you. We would love that. The setup team would, would thank you. They wouldn't hug you, but they would thank you for doing that. They might hug you, some of them. But they would definitely thank you for taking the Bible. But we would love for you to read it, by, whether by yourself or with some other people, so that you could see what is God trying to teach me through the book of Daniel. And the sermons, we're going to try to hit some of the highlights from the book itself so that you might have a deeper appreciation of what the book means for us even today. So today we want to start with Daniel's chapter 1 and 2. Daniel chapters 1 and 2, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 8. These are the verses that Joe read for us earlier. I'm just going to tell you that the, it's the first sermon of the year, so you may have to stretch out a little bit, get limbered up. Some, some folks haven't heard a sermon for two, three weeks now. Sometimes it's going to feel like some heavy lifting, but it's going to be worth it in the end. It's going to be worth it. The payoff is worth it, all right? So get limbered up. Here we go. Daniel chapter 1, and also we'll sneak into chapter 2. Chapter 1 gives us the backstory of Daniel. There is this king named Nebuchadnezzar, not the word you want to get in the spelling bee. There is a king, Nebuchadnezzar. He is in charge of Babylon. Babylon conquers Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the home base for the Israelites, God's people, God's family, God's children. So Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem, and then he goes a step further. Verse 3, we learn, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So you see Nebuchadnezzar's strategy here? Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I conquered your people, you are my subjects, now I'm going to take your best and your brightest, and I'm going to reprogram them and make them Babylonians. I'm going to teach them our language, I'm going to teach them our literature, I will delete their old identities, I will give them new identities. I will say to them, you are a Babylonian, and they will believe me. Verse 6, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, 
Mishael, and Azariah. So this is where Daniel comes in. Daniel is one of these best and brightest who, who Nebuchadnezzar is going to try to reprogram and make a Babylonian. Before I continue, I should also pause here for a moment uh, and just state that in April of this year, Mandy and I are expecting kid number two. Well, I feel the same way. And so uh, you're going to notice the other reason we're studying the book of Daniel to start the year is there's a lot of great potential baby names in the, uh, in the book. <laughs> so far we've had a Ashpenaz, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, verse 7. The chief officials gave them new names. Ah, more names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. To Azariah, Abednego. So, I'm getting distracted by all the good baby names. So, this is important to note here that, that Nebuchadnezzar takes the best and the brightest and he gives them new names. He gives them a new identity. He gives them a Babylonian name, a Babylonian identity. Forget the customs and the people and the God of your home country. You're a Babylonian now. You're going to do things the Babylonian way. My point in all this is to say, ultimately, Daniel is a book about identity. Who am I really? Deep down at my core, what is my truest identity? Who am I really? And is that identity unshakable? Am I who the God with a capital G says that I am, or am I who Nebuchadnezzar says that I am? Am I God's child, or am I a Babylonian? Primarily, deepest, at my core, am I God's child, or am I a Babylonian? Throughout his life in Babylon, Daniel continued to love God and live for God above all others. So he shows us how to do that, but this is the interesting turn he also became very esteemed by the Babylonians. Now, he got on some people's bad sides, true, but he was a trusted advisor to multiple kings throughout his lifetime. We have a lot to learn from Daniel because God taught Daniel how to thrive, even in the midst of Babylon. Not just survive in the midst of Babylon, but actually how to thrive in the midst of Babylon. God taught Daniel how to become distinguished without being indistinguishable. He, he cultivated in Daniel a sort of authentic distinctness, and it was refreshing. He wasn't just like everybody else, but people were drawn to it. From Daniel's perspective, the secret to thriving, even in the midst of Babylon, is identity is to gain clarity on the question, who am I really? At my core, deepest down, who am I really? And is my identity unshakable? The good news is that God wants to give you your truest and deepest identity. 
God wants to give you an unshakable identity rooted in Jesus Christ. God does not want you to achieve your identity. God wants you to receive your identity through faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, you can know that deep down at your core, you are a follower of Jesus, which means you are a friend of Jesus, which means you are God's child, God's son or daughter by faith. So the question I want us to reflect on during this sermon and after, but during and after, is this. What is your deepest, truest identity? What is your deepest, truest identity? Who are you really? And how does it affect how you engage with the world around you? What is your deepest and truest identity, and how does it affect, with, how, does it affect how you engage with the world around you? Because what if in 2019, this could be the year when you and I solidified our identity, not as something you achieve, but as something you receive from God? What, What if you could solidify that deep down at your core, your deepest and truest identity is that you are Jesus' follower, which means you are Jesus' friend, which means you are God's child, God's son or daughter, in whom He is well pleased? And not pleased with you because of what you've done or achieved, but pleased with you because God extends His love for Jesus to all of Jesus' followers. What if in 2019 became the year where you and I became clear in that unshakable, solid foundation of an identity that God wants to give us? What if 2019 became the year when you and I found a new way to live out that identity, that truest and deepest identity in a way that was authentic, that was refreshing, that, that, was, uh, that was distinct, but distinct in a good way, distinct in a refreshing way? so that we might thrive, not simply survive, but thrive even in the midst of a culture that's changing, even in the midst of a a place like Babylon. So, from the first two chapters, I want to point out three ways that Daniel began to live out his deepest and truest identity as God's child in the midst of Babylon. And I present these to all of us for our consideration of how we too might thrive in the midst of the world we live in. Whether we're searching for Jesus, trying to figure out who Jesus is, or we're actively following Jesus. Some things to consider. Number one, number one, number, 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 number one. Thriving in Babylon as God's child. Number one, Daniel reflected thoughtfully on where to draw lines. Daniel reflected thoughtfully on where to draw lines. Daniel did not say, well, everybody in Babylon's doing it, so I'm going to do it. Daniel also did not say, well, everyone in Babylon's doing it, so I'm definitely not going to do it. He took a different way. He said, well, everybody in Babylon may be doing it, but what does God say about it? And for example, you may remember in what Joe read for us earlier, Daniel and his friends learned the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They did not see any conflict between those studies and their identity as God's children, right? They were not trying to be needlessly separatist. But you may also remember in verse 8 that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, 
and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So here's the backstory. Nebuchadnezzar would give some allotment of his food and wine to the best and brightest. Daniel looks at this food and says, God would not want me to eat that. Now, the Bible does not say why Daniel had that opinion. People have speculated about it wildly. The, the, but the most common interpretation is that likely, in the Old Testament, God's people were held together by some strict dietary laws. So, so likely, the food and the wine or their method of preparation was not kosher. Like literally was not kosher. Didn't fit the dietary laws. It could have been something else, or it could have been multiple reasons. The Bible doesn't exactly say, but for whatever reason, Daniel is convinced God would not want him to eat the food and drink the wine. So what's a guy to do? Starve? Well, this gets me to my next point, but, but what I'm trying to make the point here is, as God's child in the midst of Babylon, you and I will be presented with a lot of decision points. And we'll have to be thoughtful about where to draw lines and where not to draw lines so that we're not needlessly separatist, but at the same time, we're guided by the question, what does God think about this? Not what does Babylon think about this? Okay, number two, thriving in Babylon as God's child. Number two, Daniel showed kindness and respect to the people in Babylon. Daniel showed kindness and respect to the people in Babylon, because sometimes people can get a little uh, fussy about this, but uh, if you run into someone who's kind of like anti-God, you'd be like, well, that's fine. If you're anti-God, I'm anti-you. Or there's a more toned-down version, which is, if you're indifferent to God, I'm indifferent to you. And that can be whether you're searching for God and trying to figure out who God is, you or you're a committed Christian, but both, we can always have those kind of responses. Daniel did something different. God cultivated within Daniel a deep love for the people of Babylon, and it comes out in how he dealt with them, even when they had disagreements. And we see it in this whole food and wine thing, how this food and wine thing played out. He goes to the chief official and says, hey, can I not eat this food and drink this wine? Would that be all right? And this was the official's response, verse 10. The official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the King, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The King would then have my head because of you. So the chief official is not too big on this uh, suggestion that Daniel has, because he's afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is going to have his head. And his fear of Nebuchadnezzar is well-founded. Nebuchadnezzar was power hungry. Nebuchadnezzar's elevator no longer serviced all the floors. They had not seen the top floors for years at this point. And so he's afraid, and this is Daniel's response. Verse 12, he says, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. How do you suppose the supervisor responded to this? He said, what a great idea. I'm glad I thought of it. Now, you have to go read the book of Daniel to figure out how it turned out. I'm just giving you a tease. I'm trying to tease you into reading the Bible here. 
See how this whole royal food incident turned out. The point I'm trying to make is that Daniel honored his supervisor's fear of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Daniel did not waver in his conviction that he should not be eating the king's food, but what he did was to find a workable compromise that showed kindness and respect to his Babylonian supervisor. In the midst of loving God, he did not lose sight of loving people. Daniel's conviction was that given enough time, God's way would show itself to be right. If he could just get to do it God's way long enough, it would show itself to be right. So what Daniel did is instead of trying to fight a war, he asked for permission. Some of us would be well-suited in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at work, at school. Instead of trying to win a war, ask for permission to try something for a period of time. Ask for permission to try something that you think, is as best you can discern, more lines up with what God would desire. Ask for the permission, and then at some point, check in with the person, evaluate it with the person who, who gave you the permission. That's what Daniel did. It's very wise. He's a young man when he came up with this, but it's wisdom beyond his years. Daniel was convinced that given time, God's way would prove itself to be best. You'll have to go read to see what happens. And then number three, number three, number, 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 number three. Thriving in Babylon as God's child, Daniel sought God in community. Daniel sought God in community. The interesting thing here is that being in Babylon actually heightened Daniel's need for community. Be, for us, living in a culture that, that changes and is changing and will continue to change, it heightens our need for the church, for this church or for some church, some church to call our church family. Because we need a community where our faith can be nurtured or our exploration of faith can be nurtured. The culture around us is not necessarily going to nurture our faith anymore or nurture your exploration of faith, right? The, the culture will say, man, stop, stop exploring all that. Just be your own spiritual boss. So we need a place where our faith or our exploration of faith is nurtured by people, where we can grow and we can serve and we can be challenged to love the people of the world. and We can be challenged to reflect thoughtfully on where to draw lines and where to leave lines undrawn. One of my hopes for all of us in 2019 is that we'll continue to prioritize regular worship. Good for you, for so many of you, for being here in worship today. May have been a resolution you made, I don't know, but I just say, well done. Let's continue to prioritize worship in this or some church family. I mean, weekly, if, if possible, weekly is best. And that's not because God has some attendance chart. We, uh, we've checked. I've polled local pastors. We are not aware that God has an attendance chart. It's not about what, what you and I, uh, that we have to do something. It's really what we need to do. It's this gift, this invitation that we've been given to draw near to the God of the universe. We need to seek God in community. And this is what it looked like for Daniel. Chapter 2 tells us that early in his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and the dream was really unsettling to him. And so he called together his wise men and astrologers and dream interpreters, and he uh, said, uh, please interpret my dream for me. 
Now, you'll have to read Daniel to learn all the details of the dream, but just giving you the highlights here. He said, please interpret my dream for me. And, and they all sort of said, you know, very reverently said, yes, king, please tell us your dream and we will interpret it. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no, better, here's one better. You tell me my dream and then interpret it. Remember what I said, like the elevator didn't service all the floors anymore? And, and the, the, the people sort of respond in a very submissive way, like, dude, you're crazy. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, you know what? If you can't do it, I'll just kill all of you. Again, power hungry, crazy. Now, Daniel, as you may remember from what Joe read, Daniel had a gift. God had given Daniel a gift for interpreting dreams. But he was like way at the bottom of the dream interpretation org chart at this point. So he's not in the room when this is happening, but he could still be liable for it. He could still be killed for it. And so this is what Daniel does. Chapter 2, verse 17. Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter, the matter about Nebuchadnezzar going to threatening to kill everybody. He returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So what does Daniel do? He gathers with his friends and pleads for God's intervention. In other words, they sought God in community. The struggles of Babylon did not isolate Daniel. The struggles of Babylon actually pushed Daniel closer to other people, other people who were trying to thrive. He did not become isolated. He became more involved with other people who were trying to thrive, and then all of them got pushed closer to God by the struggles of Babylon. To me, that's the vision of what a church family is. It is people who come together, who work against isolation to say that we are going to be together with others who are trying to thrive in the midst of the world that we live in. Our struggles will push us closer to others, not further from others. And ultimately, those struggles will push all of us closer to God. The beautiful thing is that God reveals to Daniel and his three friends a way forward. He gives them what they ask for. You'll learn all about it in chapter 2. But the point is that if the question of Daniel is one of identity, the overarching point of Daniel is this. Although our faith may waver in Babylon, God's faithfulness will not waver. So if the major question Daniel poses is identity, who are you really? And how does it affect how you interact with the world? The point of Daniel is that while our faith may waver in Babylon, God's faithfulness will not waver. Psalm 139.7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? That's a great verse to hold on to. (laughs) In difficult times, that's a verse to go back to. Where can you flee that is beyond the reach of God? Where can you go where God is not at work? Daniel and his friends found time and time again in Babylon that God showed up. 
Maybe not went right when they wanted him to, but he always showed up on time because God's love and commitment to his children is real. And it shows itself again and again and again and again. God's faithfulness does not waver. And this always faithful God wants to give you your identity, an unshakable identity, unshakable because He gives it to you. Not necessarily how you, whether you feel it in every given moment, but it's an unshakable identity because the God of the universe gives it to you. The unshakable identity is, is that as you and I put our faith in Christ, as we trust our lives into the hands of Jesus, we are Jesus' followers, which means that we are Jesus' friends, which means that we are God's children, God's son or God's daughter, in whom he is well pleased. Sometimes we hear that in whom he is well pleased, we think, okay, how can I make God pleased with me? But that's backwards. Because the identity God wants to give you is an identity you receive, not one that you achieve, one that you receive. God extends His love for Jesus to all of Jesus' followers. So when you become a follower of Jesus, you become God's son or daughter in whom He is well pleased, well pleased because of how He loves Jesus. You find that unshakable identity in God an unshakable identity based on how God loves Christ and extends that love to all of Christ's followers. And that begins to change how you and I might interact with the world around us. So let's see if we can remember the three big points here. How did Daniel in the first couple chapters, at least that I could tell, I'm sure there's others, you get, go to a church with a better preacher, you'll learn other ones, but the three I found... How did he thrive in Babylon as God's child? Let's see if we can do these. The first was he was thoughtful about where he drew lines and didn't draw lines. The second was he, Daniel showed kindness and respect to the Babylonians. The third one was that Daniel sought God in community. But all of this on the deeper question of identity. Am I God's child or am I who Babylon says I am? Last thought. A couple hours down the road from the University of Vermont, there's this city called uh, Boston. You may have heard of it, Boston. Not exactly the buckle of the Bible belt, Boston, Massachusetts. Fifty years ago, five zero years ago, there were 318 churches in Boston. 318. In the intervening 50 years, the population of Boston has stayed r relatively flat. But the number of churches has not. The number of churches has almost doubled. As of last count, there are 580 churches in Boston. Can a Christian thrive in a changing culture? Can someone investigating the Christian faith thrive in a culture that cares less, at least ex externally cares less and thinks less about God? The answer, Boston would suggest, is yes. Th that in fact, uh, the way culture is changing is uh, making people more eager to gather with others and learn about God and worship God. 
that in fact your faith or your exploration of faith can thrive in the midst of the world that we live in. Why? Because in the end, we're not talking about, is Babylon faithful? In the end, we're not even talking about, are you faithful to God? We're talking about, is God faithful to you? And the answer to that question is yes. God is faithful. God has been faithful. God will be faithful. And through Jesus Christ, God reaches out to you so that he might walk alongside you every step of the way and forever embrace you as his child. Thriving and flourishing faith is possible. And I pray that's what 2019 holds for each of us. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God, or to listen to God about whatever it is He's stirring in your heart or in your mind. Lord, I do pray for our church family. I thank you for all those who are worshiping and assembled here today. Lord, when a new year starts, sometimes we put the weight of the world on our own shoulders. And that works for about a week and a half. So that I pray in 2019 we may take a different route, which is to trust our lives into the hands of Jesus and to ask Jesus to transform us at a deep level, at a soul level, and for that to change the way we interact with this world. So, Lord, give us discernment about where to and not to draw lines. Give us kindness and respect for the people in our lives. Help us to hunger to seek you with others. Above all else, Lord, may we find an unshakable identity received from you. I pray in these final songs, whether for the first time or the first time in a long time, we would open up our hands and our hearts and our minds to you, invite you in, that we might receive our identity as God's children through, trust, through trusting our life into Jesus' hands. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, let's worship with our voices and our offering and our prayer requests.